in Matthew chapter 12, and we'll begin reading from verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also also will it be with this generation, this evil generation. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And we thank God for his word. So we ended last week with a question. Can this be the son of David? And that's where we start again this evening. It's the same question. This is the central question um, for last week's passage, and it continues to be the key question for the passage that we're looking at here in Matthew's Gospel tonight. And it's the question, actually, for us tonight, too. It's a key question that we all need to have answered. Is this Jesus, the promised Messiah? Is he the true king who demands our allegiance? Is he the one who one day will judge the world? Is he the saviour who promises rest to all who come to him? Is he the one who has power on earth to forgive sins? Is this the son of David? And if he is, how have we, how will we respond to him? Well, have you ever wondered what it would be like to be in the crowd here when Jesus is teaching and and when these things are going on in Matthew chapter 11 and 12? Just imagine with me for a moment. Put yourself there if you can. The people are gathered round and the tension has been building and uh, it's been clear for some time now, rather, that that Jesus and the Pharisees are on a a kind of collision path. The tension's been building. The arguments and the niggles have been there. And, And now, and now here we are. Everything seems to have come to a head on this day. Here's Jesus with his followers gathered around him over here. And and he's been making these astonishing claims. He's claimed that the prophecies of Isaiah, which are all about the coming Messiah, speak about him. He claims that he's the Son of God, the one who reveals the Father to the world. He says he's greater than the temple. That's greater than God's dwelling place on earth. What a claim that is. He claims that he's Lord of the Sabbath, the, the holy day of rest. 
Wow, Jesus is making some claims. But over here, on the other hand, we have the Pharisees and the scribes the, the, and their supporters. Here are the religious leaders. They're the religious experts. They, they understand God's law better than anyone, don't they? And, and they're the ones who are supposed to tell us how we are meant to please God. And here they are, and they're dismissive of Jesus. They're getting increasingly angry and frustrated with him. And, and, and if we're honest, perhaps even a little jealous of him and all the support that he's pulling together. And uh, they keep on challenging him. And they keep coming back to him and responding to him. They say, well, how come, Jesus, your disciples are, are breaking the Sabbath, eating grain, walking through the fields? And, and how can you heal on the Sabbath when it's not lawful? And, and, and what we were looking at last week, um, how, how, how is it that you cast out demons? You do it by the power of of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. And, and what an a, what a accusation that is to attribute all of Jesus' powerful um, uh, miracles to the power of the devil. But they are settled and they are vehement in their opposition to him. And rather than recognize the work of God here, they oppose him. And all the more so as he condemns them as he calls them evil, as he says that their, their words indicate that their hearts are evil, and as he quotes the, New, the Old Testament at them, and he says to them, um, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. A condemnation of the rebellious Old Testament Jews. And Jesus responds, and Jesus replies, and Jesus deals with them. But they're not put off. And even as we come in today's passage, they haven't given up. And this tension, this battle, this fight of wills and fight for the minds and the hearts of the people is going on. And so some of the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask this question, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And we'll come back to that in a minute. So we have these two groups. We have Jesus and his followers on the one hand and we have the Pharisees and their supporters on the other. And they're very much at loggerheads. But actually... As we look around, I think it's right that we see that there's a third group here as well. There's the great mass of the, the crowds. They've been following Jesus. Lots of people have been impressed by him. They find his teaching astonishing. It's, it's so much better than the teaching of the Pharisees, the sort of dividing of the law and looking for little subtle bits of interpretation of how we're supposed to live. Jesus' teaching is much better than that. It comes with authority and with a freshness and a, and a, a wonder. And they're impressed with his miracles probably they've been affected by them. A number of them have been healed. And they've, they've watched on and they've listened and they've been amazed and they wonder, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the son of David? And yet, and yet, they stand back just a little. They're impressed. They love what Jesus is doing, but they've not committed. They're not sure. They haven't followed him. They haven't bowed the knee. And so we have to say that I think today we have these same three groups of people. Perhaps even in this room we have these three groups. There are the Pharisees of our day, the, the moral authorities, the, the politicians, the, the media voices, the prominent academics, church leaders, celebrities, people who pronounce on how we should live, what morality ought to look like, how we ought to treat one another, and, and what we should think, what morality should, for the 21st century should be all about. But all the while, rejecting and scorning the claims of Jesus to be Messiah and Saviour, and opposing the gospel and true Christian teaching. I think many, perhaps most people in our society, follow them. And perhaps you're here tonight, and that's you. Perhaps that's you. 
Then there are Jesus' disciples, secondly. Um, These are the ones who've come to him in faith, and they know him to be their saviour and their king. Perhaps that's most of us, many of us tonight. And finally, there are those who are are non-committal. They appreciate the influence of Jesus. They respect his teaching. They love to be around his people in church, and they they love to hear about him. But, you know, they're indecisive. They've never truly joined his followers. They've never truly trusted And it may well be that that's you here this evening. And in this passage, Jesus speaks powerfully and and separately to each of those three groups. And we have three pictures, three um, illustrations here in in the three sections of our passage that we're going to look at tonight. And one of them deals primarily, or each of them deals primarily with one of those three groups of people. So there's something in here for all of us to hear. Um, So if you look on your notice sheet, you have a simple outline, um, just the three points, and we're going to look at the passage in order, and we're starting with what I've said, described as this, the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah, unbelief will be judged, and that's verse 38 to 42, the sign of Jonah, unbelief will be judged. So Jesus here is dealing with the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees and their followers. What does he have to say to these people, to the, the, the experts in the law, to the moral authorities, to the religious leaders of, Jesus, of his day? And what does he have to say to the moral authorities of our day and those who follow them? Well, the crowds have been wondering, haven't they, what's coming next? And suddenly up come this little group of the scribes and the Pharisees and they come to Jesus and they, they ask this question. They make this request. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. So what's this all about? What are they saying? Well, something like this. Okay, Jesus, you claim to be the Messiah. You claim to do God's work. That's all very well. Well, prove it to us. Give us some miraculous evidence. And I guess many of us here tonight talking to people outside of the church will have heard people saying similar things. If, if Jesus really is the only saviour, if he's the only hope, if he's the one who's come to forgive us, and if we can only have hope in him if he really demands me to come and put my faith in him, then why doesn't he come and speak to me personally? Why doesn't he do some miraculous sign that everyone can see? Why doesn't he write something in the sky or whatever? Why, why has he not made it obvious? Why hasn't he done something miraculous so I have to believe? Why has he written it down in a 2,000-year-old book? If that's all we've got, isn't it just more reasonable to believe what the majority today believe? To go with what I hear on the radio, on the TV, and and what everyone else seems to think is right. But Jesus' response actually is very harsh, isn't it? An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. That's a pretty harsh response. And and, and, and perhaps we might be just a little bit taken back by what Jesus says here. These, These guys come up and they ask for a sign. They want some evidence. That's a fair question. But Jesus bats them back pretty harshly and condemns them. Is that how Jesus responds to those who come looking for evidence that he's the Messiah? Well, before we answer that, just think back a few weeks and think back to chapter 11. You remember back at the beginning of this section in John, from the first first few verses of, uh, of, of Matthew, the first few verses of chapter 11, John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus and says, um, Are you the one who's to come? Or should we look to another? This great prophet in prison is having doubts and difficulties and struggles, and he's wondering if he's got it right. 
And Jesus sends a very gracious message back. He says in in chapter 11 and verse 4, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf, deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Well, these are gracious words to the unsure person, aren't they? Jesus is saying, there's no need to doubt, John. Look at the evidence, all kind of sickness healed. Even the dead are raised to life, and the good news of the kingdom of heaven is preached. And this is just what Isaiah prophesied, and it's all being fulfilled. It's okay, you don't need to doubt. The evidence was there. And if you're here tonight and you're still investigating the Christian faith and perhaps you're unsure about the claims of Jesus and and you're just trying to work it out, well, Jesus' response here at the end of chapter 12 is is not really for you. Not first of all. The response for you is, is what he gave to John. Come and see the evidence. Come and see this one who healed and raised the dead and preached the good news. But that's not the position of the Pharisees. Because these Pharisees, they have seen the blind healed. They have seen the lame walk. They've seen the lepers cleansed. They've seen the deaf having their hearing restored. The dead raised to life. Demons cast out. The good news of the kingdom preached. And so had all the crowds. Everyone has seen this. Everyone knew this. And yet they come. And they've had every possible sign that they could possibly have. And yet they come to Jesus in unbelief and resistance and rebellion. And they say... Lord, give us a sign. What sign do you want? What more sign could you possibly have? And that's the context of Jesus' response. You see, the problem was not a lack of evidence. The evidence was clear. The problem was their unbelief and their stubborn hearts. They preferred to assign Jesus' miracles to the devil, which was just ridiculous, rather than to believe in him. But even so, whilst Jesus doesn't now do a miracle, he does give them a sign. He does point them to a sign. He points them forward, indeed, to the ultimate sign, which he calls here the sign of Jonah. And this sign functions to condemn unbelief convincingly and unanswerably. It's a sign, actually, that is salvation to those who believe. But here it functions as condemnation. So what is this sign of Jonah? Well, you remember Jonah the prophet, and he's sent by God to the people of Nineveh to condemn them for their great evil. But Jonah doesn't want to go. He realizes that God is good and gracious and kind, and he'll probably save and forgive them. So he gets on a boat in the opposite direction and runs for it. I'm not going to go and preach to those people in Nineveh. I don't want God to forgive them. They're evil and nasty. I'm not going And of course, God doesn't let him get away with it. God brings a storm along, and the boat is tossed around, and and it's going to be broken up, and they're all going to drown. And the the pagan sailors um, cast lots, and and, and Jonah comes up, and they call up Jonah, and they say, okay, tell us what's going on, Jonah. And Jonah says, yeah, this is my fault. I've run away from Almighty God. Your only hope is to throw me into the sea. And reluctantly, they throw him in. And of course, Jonah thinks, so this is it for me. I'm going to die. But, but God has other plans. God has other plans. And, uh, and, and God sends a great fish. We know the story, don't we? 
And Jonah's swallowed up. And he's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's as if he's down in the depths of the earth, down in the grave. And yet, God has him there, kept safe. And Jonah eventually turns and he prays a wonderful prayer of repentance and commitment to God. And the fish comes and it coughs him up, spews him up on the beach. And here's Jonah, after three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, and he goes to Nineveh. And he preaches to them. He says, 40 days and your city will be destroyed. God says that. And how do they respond? They mourn. In sackcloth and ashes, they say, perhaps if we show that we are repentant, this God will forgive us. And God indeed is gracious and merciful, and he does forgive them. So from three days and three nights, down in the depths of the earth comes Jonah with the message of salvation. And this is a picture of Jesus, a picture of the Son of Man. And here is Jesus then, tried and mocked and beaten and crucified, dead and buried in the ground. And on the third day, he rises from the dead, just like Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And the question we are confronted with here, the question that confronts the Pharisees, that confronts the moral authorities of our day and those who follow them, is this. Will you believe because the evidence is overwhelming look go and look at the evidence for the resurrection we know that jesus died we know that he was buried virtually no sensible person denies that and actually when you go and look at the evidence for the resurrection it's compelling the only way you can reject it is by simply refusing to believe that it could possibly happen the evidence otherwise points to a risen Lord Jesus Christ. And in the light of that, there is no logical conclusion other than to come and to bow the knee to the Messiah who rose from the dead. But of course, they do not. The Pharisees did not. Our society today does not because they will not believe. And as they refuse to do so, tragically, the evidence of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ condemns them. But actually, we can say even more than that. Look down at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why so? Why? Because they repented, whilst the Pharisees did not. And just consider this for a minute, because this is the key point here, actually. The men of Nineveh repented on the slenderest of evidence. What did they have? They had a washed-up prophet out of the belly of a fish, preaching against his will. Really didn't want to be there. And he preached a simple message that said that a God that they knew really very little about was angry with them because of their evil. Uh, And that was pretty much it. And on the strength of that, they repented and were saved and forgiven. Slender evidence. How much more evidence did the Pharisees have? How much more evidence do we have? How much more knowledge and understanding. We have Jesus who is so much greater than Jonah and he was crucified and he rose. We have no excuse. And similarly, really, the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South in verse 42, she heard news from a distant country that there was a very wise king on the throne in Israel. And and on the basis of that, she traveled to learn from Solomon and she submitted and learned the wisdom of God as held by Solomon and That really was all she had. There's a wise king. 
It's worth going to hear him. And she went and she submitted to God's wisdom as a result. She had very little evidence, very slender evidence, and yet she came. And therefore, these two, the men of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba, on the day of judgment, when everyone is raised to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ, on that day, the evidence will stand. Here are the Ninevites. They repented. Here is the Queen of of Sheba. She, She submitted to God's wisdom. And these two, they stand and they condemn those who had so much more evidence but would not believe. So what about you then? What about you? Perhaps you're here tonight and you live by the wisdom of our times. You listen to the the, the media outlets and you listen to the politicians and you listen to the celebrities and and, 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 and you adopt the sort of general morality of our day that says very much live and let live and there's nothing absolute and there's no wrong way and there's no right way and to, to say that there's only one way to God, well, that's just wrong. Perhaps that's you. Maybe you're religious, but you reject the claims of Jesus on your life. You reject his demand for your submission and trust in him. This is dangerous. It's a dangerous place to be. It's tragic. You have all of the evidence you could possibly want or need in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. By all means, go and look again at that evidence. Read it. Study it. Learn from it. But don't reject it. Come to Jesus and make him your saviour, or else you face certain and eternal punishment. Because on that last day, you will be totally without excuse. So come. Please come to Jesus today. Christians, I think it can be very intimidating sometimes to live in our society. The voices of our politicians and our media and the intellectuals and the commentators and the celebrities, they seem very intimidating, don't they? People around us, the vast majority of people around us seem opposed to us. And, and, and there's times when we must be tempted, we are tempted to think, well, well, maybe I've just got it wrong. Maybe this Christianity is outdated. Maybe Jesus' claims weren't true. But when you feel that way, Take a step back. Remind yourself of the evidence. Remind yourself of the sign of Jonah. Remind yourself of the sign of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is evidence that towers throughout history and shouts out, I am who I said I am. I am the Savior. I am the Messiah. I am Almighty God made man. And you have trusted me and you're mine. And you will be safe. Don't worry about what all those people say. Don't worry about all of the messages that are out there and the oppression that at times you feel. Be confident in this Jesus because the evidence is rock solid. So, the sign of uh, of Jonah then condemns the unbelieving Pharisees and all who follow them. And at the same time, it brings encouragement to Christian believers. What about the third group of people? We haven't mentioned them yet. And in fact, a second point addresses them. Those who are in that sort of undecided camp. So firstly, we've had the sign of Jonah. Unbelief will be judged. Secondly, the picture of the returning spirit. And the message here is indecision is fatal. Indecision is fatal. If that's you, you've, you've never truly come yet and committed Um, to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though you're often in church and you appreciate being here. Well, this is for you. 
And what we have here, actually, on the first um, reading seems pretty bewildering, doesn't it? This story just sort of plonked in here about when, a holy, when an evil spirit is cast out, it goes and it wanders around and it doesn't find anywhere place to rest and it comes back to the heart where it started. Um, but I think the way we have to read this is to understand that whatever this does teach us about unclean spirits and demonology and the rest, that's not really the point here. This is a picture, it's a parable. We've just had, not very long ago, Jesus healing um, a demon-possessed man. And he's picking this real event that everyone has just seen, and he's using it as an illustration to teach a, a key lesson. So let's just think about what this story says and what we can learn from it. So um, the unclean spirit is cast out of a person by, by Jesus, or I guess by someone else. It goes around looking for rest, and it doesn't find any. So therefore it decides to go back to the original person, its original house, and it takes a whole load of other spirits, another seven evil spirits with it. And, and this house, the unfortunate person's heart, well, it's been swept clean and it's ready and it's empty. And that's key, it's empty. And so these seven spirits come in and the person ends up really much worse off than they were before. And then Jesus says, so will it be with this generation. What does it mean? Well, here... Here are the crowds around Jesus. They're interested in him. They love his teaching and his miracles. They think he might well be the Messiah, but they're not ready to commit just now. They've come under the influence of his teaching. His kingdom has come near to them. They've loved the signs that he's done. And to some extent, they've been changed. They're better people for Jesus being there. They're kinder people. They, they have a new respect for God, perhaps, and for the people around them. Having Jesus around, well, somehow it's like they've been swept clean. But yet, they don't accept. They don't bow the knee. They don't repent. They don't put their faith in Jesus. And therefore, they remain empty. They've had a little bit of reform and improvement, but nothing fundamentally has changed because Jesus has not come to them, into them. And then only a little while later, well, Jesus is gone. It's not that long, not that long. And they return to how they were before. They came so close to the kingdom, and yet in the end, well, they don't believe. They reject Jesus every bit as much as the Pharisees do. Their emptiness is filled not by the Savior, but by sin and unbelief. And how terrible, how terrible it will be for them on the day of judgment. It will be much more terrible than it will be for the pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon, for those who never heard of Jesus in the first place. It will be more terrible for them. Why? Because they came so close. The influence of Jesus was there. They could reach out and touch him. He might have healed them. He cared for them. He taught them. He showed them the Father. And they knew it all, and yet they did not trust. And the question each one of us must ask is, is that me? So what about you? Perhaps you've been at church all your life. You don't know where you'd be without the love of your friends in the church. You enjoy a good sermon. You love learning from God's Word. That's a good thing. You, you like being part of CCY or Focus or Cord or a home group or, or another group. Um, you, in, you enjoy all of that stuff. You love being here. And you, you, you recognize that because you're part of this church, then you're a much better person. You don't get involved in all the immoral behavior out there. You you've been, really have been changed by being part of church. And yet... And yet, 
You're empty. You've never quite got around to trusting in Jesus for yourself. You don't really doubt that he's the only saviour, but it just doesn't seem that urgent. Or maybe you're just not sure enough. There are always questions, and, and, and you just put it off, and you don't worry about it. And, and well, it's, it's great for all these people that they're so convinced that they have so much faith, that it's so clear for them, but for me, well, I, I like being here, but I'm just not sure. So what does this parable, this picture say to you? It says, wake up. You're in deadly danger. Even though you have no time for those who oppose Jesus and mock Christianity, even though you um, condemn those churches that don't teach or believe the Bible, even though you love being in a Bible-teaching church, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are absolutely as full of unbelief as the Pharisees. You refuse to accept Jesus and submit to his rule, and your situation in the end will be no better than the scribes or the Pharisees. On the day of judgment, you too will be condemned, and what a tragedy that will be, because you will be condemned knowing that there is a Savior. You'll be condemned knowing that there is a a Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and died on Calvary, that there was hope for you to be his child, to, to know him, to be forgiven, to be in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And yet, you said no. To see to say on that last day to Jesus, Lord, I did so many things in your name. And to hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. Don't let that be you. Come to me, says Jesus, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to him. Come today. Whilst there's time. So that's the picture of the returning spirit. Indecision is fatal. So we have one group left. And this is the believers. These are Jesus' followers, his disciples. And my third point then, much more briefly, is this. The message of Jesus' mother and brothers. Family is everything. Family is everything. Let's just reread um, verses 46 to 50. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. You see, when we turn away from opposing Jesus Christ and we come and trust in him, we don't just become servants. We don't just become students. We don't just become followers or disciples. We become something much more. Family. Imagine again being in the, in the crowd on this day. And imagine specifically you're in this little group of people gathered around Jesus. You're one of his followers there. Um, there's this great battle of wills and minds going on, this huge debate, this intellectual fight, this, this, this Jesus speaking and the Pharisees speaking. Is he the Son of God or is he not? And, and here you are, you're standing with Jesus. And, and perhaps at times you feel, you feel yourself a little bit intimidated because, well, you're just an ordinary person. Who were the disciples? They were just ordinary people. We have fishermen, and we have a a tax collector, and we have just people of ordinary background. These are not 
great intellectuals. These are not the rich and the wealthy and the influencers and the influential in our society. And most of us here, and I'm sorry if I'm insulting anyone, but most of us here are not the movers and shakers, are we? We're not the great and the mighty and the rich and the good because most people aren't. We're just ordinary people. Many of us have things in our past that we're sad about and ashamed of. Many of us have struggles that we battle with every day. Many of us feel weak and insignificant and small. And here's Jesus, and he's speaking. And his family come. I know his family are important, aren't they? Isn't he going to bring them in and speak to them? Well, I'm sure that he does in time. But he uses his family as a picture of something much more wonderful. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And here we are. We're gathered behind Jesus and we're not quite sure. We don't feel too great about ourselves, maybe. And he stretches out his hand towards us and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For everyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus stretches out his hand towards us and he says, You're my family. That's what he says to believers. That's what he says to Christians. Isn't that extraordinary? You are my brother, mother and my brothers and my sisters. And as Christian believers, we, we may well feel small and insignificant, but, but we are the family of God. We are Jesus' family, and by the grace of God, we enter into his family. We're not just servers or followers, or servants or followers, or even friends. We are God's family forever. Because Jesus has died for us and paid the penalty for our sins, we're no longer separated from God, but rather we're brought in. We're brought into the family of God. We're welcome. Our status is permanent and secure. Family bonds can't be broken. And neither can these. We have unrestricted access to our heavenly Father. We will be safe and secure until Christ returns. And on the day of judgment, we will stand as family with the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered that? You'll stand with him not as those who've just about escaped, those who've just about been forgiven, those who are just about okay. You stand with the privileged status of family. Christians, when you feel yourself struggling with life, when the anti-Christian sentiment in our world around us gets to you, and, and perhaps when your colleagues and your friends and your family discourage you, remember this. Remember your status. Remember that you are the spiritual family of God. Remember that Jesus calls you brother and sister and mother. Come to him. Be confident that he always, always accepts you. And if you haven't yet come to trust in Jesus, don't just recognize the terrible danger that you're in. Although you must do that. But also recognize the incredible, incredible blessing that you are missing out on to be part of God's family and to know all of the wonder and joy and security that that brings. And lastly, when you become part of the family, you start to show family likeness. It's important that we understand when we look at verse 50 that Jesus is not saying here that we become part of the family by obeying commandments. It's the other way around. Just like we know a tree by its fruit, we know a family member because they show family likeness. When we come into the family, we start to become like Jesus. He works in us and he makes us obedient to the Father's will because we're family. Of course, this starts with bowing the knee to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. 
but it then leads to a life of increasing Christ-likeness. We'll fail often. Jesus' disciples certainly did, didn't they? There's Peter here, and there's James and John here, and there's Thomas here. But God is at work in us, in changing us, developing family likeness in his family. So then, how have you responded to Jesus? He is the son of David. The evidence screams that at you. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. Which group are you in right now? Are you with the Pharisees, the moral authorities, the unbelievers? God calls on you to stop denying the evidence and come to Jesus whilst there is time. Are you with the indecisive? Wake up. Know that it's not enough to be influenced for the good by Jesus and his church. Come and put your faith in the one true Messiah and Lord today. Are you with the disciples? Then rejoice. Rejoice in your status as God's family. And don't fear whatever this world throws at you. You are brothers and sisters and mothers of this great son of David. Jesus is that great son of David. Let's praise his name. Amen.